welcome to Metaphorically Speaking with me, Delia Delore, the podcast where we dissect popular mottos, mantras and metaphors, tracing their origins and seeing how they translate into everyday life. Each week we invite a special guest who resonates with their chosen expression. discussing our chosen metaphor which is sticks and stones may break my bones but words will never hurt me it's not only a metaphor it also acts as a mantra specifically for children who may often face a lot of verbal bullying when in school especially in this day and age but in 2022 how relevant is this metaphor has it lost its relevancy become out of date even we may still say it. Indeed, it's still embedded in our everyday language. But do we believe in it anymore? This is all something that we'll be talking about and looking at in today's program. Have you ever used this metaphor yourself at some point in your life as self-comfort or even to comfort others? It's a metaphor we pick up as children, often in school, so we all use it from a young age. I remember using it. Well, at a time where People thought I was teacher's pet, and because of that, they would tell me some horrible things. That was in the 70s, early 70s, and racism was still vibrant then. And I remember the hurtful things that were said to me because my mother was very light-skinned and my dad was dark. So when I was told sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me, I was told that by, I'm trying to remember who he was now who said that to me. Actually, they didn't say it to me. It was a friend who was telling me that is what they say to themselves when someone is horrible to them. That's how, and I remember her name as well. Her name was Julie Payne, Julia Payne. And because of her, I hooked onto that. Thinking about it too. Can you remember a time when this metaphor wasn't in use? It's a pretty old-fashioned one, and it stuck around for a long time, as I said before, perhaps testament to its core message and appeal. Indeed, the metaphor has been in use since the 19th century, coined by the English travel writer and historian Alexander William Kinglake, traced back to 1844 from his book Eothen, which describes his travels throughout the Middle East. In fact, he described the area as golden sticks and stones. It then later appeared in an edition of the African Methodist Episcopal Church in 1862 as sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never break me. Seeming to then gain traction and become ingrained in our everyday language. So for nearly 200 years now, it's been intrinsically part of our day-to-day -day lives. As mentioned at the start of this program, it's used as a mantra to deflect any kind of verbal abuse we might face and to remain resilient in the face of it all. There are many examples throughout history where individuals appeared to have stuck by this line, never giving into any verbal abuse they might have faced. To name but a few, Rosa Parks, who endured years of not only physical but verbal racial attacks before her famous bus boycott in 1955. Also, the king of rock and roll himself, Elvis Presley, who was told in his youth, whilst trying to break into the music business, that he couldn't sing. Imagine if either had not believed in themselves and listened to those who tried to put them down. 
Sticks and stones can definitely be used as a means to inspire ourselves, safe in the knowledge that we can overcome any cruelty that may come our way. However, as we all know, times have changed since the days of Alexander Kinglake and even Elvis. We now live in an age where cyberbullying is unfortunately common, a severe example of extreme verbal abuse which could contribute to mental health issues. So is this metaphor out of date? Have we reached a point in human history where verbal mistreatment is considered to be just as bad as physical? Perhaps so. In 2017, Prince William took to the stage at the YouTube headquarters in London to talk about how the effects of cyberbullying have become personal for him. The issue of cyberbullying and its consequences are personal. My work as a HEMS pilot, air ambulance pilot, has exposed me to the tragedy of suicide and the despair felt by those who've been subjected to cruelty and abuse. Through my work on mental health, I've spent time getting to know parents and children for whom the impact of online bullying has been devastating. And as a parent myself, I understand the sense of loss and anger of those particular families who have lost children after they were the target. Cyberbullying is becoming a growing concern of the 21st century, with online trolls attacking individuals with offensive comments. Cyberbullying can affect anyone of any age, but the most commonly affected group are teenagers, specifically those aged between 14 and 18, an age where you're most likely to be going through a lot of changes, open to new ideas and suggestions. This unfortunately causes children to be at the mercy of online trolls. The highest rates of online harassment coming from India, Brazil and the United States. Here are a few stories from a few teenagers in the UK who were affected by online cyberbullying. In year seven, um, I was bullied a lot. It like just started like because I didn't like, my mum didn't have much money so we couldn't get like new clothes and stuff and have like all the new makes and that. Oh, bullying made me feel, I don't know, inferior. Like I wasn't important. It's awful and looking as an outside uh, viewer, it can seem like petty things are happening and it shouldn't affect the person. I was bullied and it was cyberbullying and even though people think it's not a big deal and I'll just get over it, it it's really not as easy and as people make it sound. The worst part was going home and seeing what all these people said about me. It's not like I could just go home and come back to it tomorrow when I go back to school, but it was my reality, it was, it was my life at one point. It's really actually really hard because you can't escape it whatsoever, even if you're not online, you just, it's the only thing you can think about. It's like the idea of someone tapping constantly over and over and over again. The build-up of taps makes you want to scream. It really like deteriorated your like confidence in school and you want it to like disappear from everyone. I just got really, really upset because it's not nice to, to see um, um, I started getting teased and bullied for being camp and not playing football with the guys and then having to hang out with the girls and then getting bullied about that. Like er nearly everybody's bullied but it really does scar you for life. 
It is also reckoned, according to recent studies, that the COVID-19 pandemic has also led to an increase in cyberbullying, with people having more time indoors to spend online. Of course, cyberbullies or online trolls can't hurt us physically, can they? More often than not, they will be someone at the other end of the world who we have no personal connection to and will probably never meet in our lives. Yet, if we go by the mantra of sticks and stones, then why does cyberbullying have such a significant impact on our society? Does it go to prove that King Lake's mantra is well and truly irrelevant now? To quote comedian and actor Stephen Fry, who might be in agreement here, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will always hurt me. Bones mend and become actually stronger in the very place that they were broken and where they knitted up. Mental wounds can grind and ooze for decades and be reopened by the quietest whisper. And believe it or not, cyberbullying can lead to physical side effects in the long term. Think about it. Our minds and bodies are intrinsically linked, aren't they? So apply too much pressure to the mind and the body will inevitably end up suffering too at some point. According to studies, effects from cyberbullying range from not only depression, but lead to a decrease in immunity, fluctuations in weight, gastrointestinal problems, and even thyroid issues. It's important to remember then, in this current day and age, where our mobile phones and social media accounts are a part of our everyday lives, that we are in 24-7 contact with the world around us. So we should always ensure that we always remain nice to one another. Now it's time for my guest. Anthony Brightly is a former child prodigy. And if I said to you that he was born in Hackney, East London, to serial entrepreneurial Jamaican immigrants, George and Millicent Brightly, who had a very famous sound system called Sir George, I would take you back in the day, right? And then if I said Black State, you would say, yep, it's coming back to me. So let's talk to Anthony to find out what he's been up to. Anthony, thank you for being on Metaphorically Speaking today. Uh, it's a pleasure. Mm-hmm. I have been a while. Mm-hmm. So thank you. Thank you for having me on your show. Tell us a bit, you know, about you. What, you know, what are, what are you up to? Where have you been? I now live in Antigua. I moved here 20 years ago. But it all started in the very early 60s where I, my father is um, a DJ so the name George, George Bradley is my father, and he had a sound system called Sir George, which is the sound system that I took over. So I started as a musician at the age of eight, joined my first band when I was eight, and then my second band when I was 12. The second band was Black Slate, which most people would know me for. Now, Black Slate is the first black British band and as many people say, what qualifies you for that? And what it is, being born when I was born, and which makes now 50 years that we've been in the reggae music industry in the UK, which makes us the first, because everyone else who has been in the charts or has done things came from the Caribbean. So, because I started so young, it gave me that advantage to be qualified as the first. So we were the first group to do a black social commentary record that represents what was about black people, which was Sticksman. We were the first 
British reggae band to get in the top 10 charts of the UK. We also had a, a European hit in Belgium, Holland, Luxembourg. So um, we did very well there. And in the world in general, our hit record Amiga was released in almost every major country in the world and got in the top 10. Some places top five, some people places top three, and some places it made number one. That we've done, but we we did break up. Um, I never even break up, we actually split waves because being such a young band with no training, as happens with footballers, when you make money and become very successful, if you haven't had training in that era, you'll find that you're learning on your feet. And um, fortunately for, we, for myself, as my dad being an entrepreneur in his own right, I worked with him a lot. So you found that I was into business, but that wasn't normal for kids my age. And also I was the youngest person in the band. So when the band started, I was 12. And the next age person in the band was 17. So there was always this wide age gap, which meant I was doing things what 17 and 18 and 19 year olds were doing at the age of 12 and 13. So I had a lot of experience and I saw a lot of what happened to my older peers. So it made you understand that fame is one thing, being on top of your game is another, but doing business and staying there is where it, it becomes hard. So the, the core members of Black Slate went into business as well. So we opened record studio, recording studios, we opened our own label, we opened our own mastering house, Galvanic, and now pressing plant. And now we've also gone into making movies and we're about to build our first film studio here in Antigua. And then we choose, we're planning to build our second one in the UK. That's us in everything, music, film, the industry of entertainment, that we've done a lot of community work as well. But hearing everything that you're saying, it sounds like it was easy, although you said it was very hard, but because you and the group and your dad, of course, accomplished so many things, we sometimes perhaps aren't aware of how difficult it was? I mean, was it difficult in those times? It was extremely difficult, but when you look at the times now, even though things are supposed to be a lot easier, I can go back and say it was easier then than it is now. How come? We had a community then, so you had to become successful within your own community. So you had black shop, black clubs, black everything. So our money stayed in our community a lot longer. You were only trying to become successful in your community, and that would pay you. So we played in black clubs every week all over England. If it wasn't Birmingham, it was Manchester, Manchester, Bristol, Southampton, Bedford, Northampton. So we played up and down the country in black communities, which came, and that why we had a lot more money. So that's why a lot more of us had houses and shops and business because we did business amongst ourselves. You know what I mean? So if you wanted to get on a stage, you could go to a, a black club to go on a black stage. Well, now 
it doesn't matter what kind of music you you have to go to a corporate company to get on someone's stage where somebody who's just got education and got that job doesn't necessarily know anything about music and that's how unless you can crunch their numbers you can't do business with them and how are you able then to break in fact come out of the community to get international stardom international plays how did people get to know you how did that happen well because we became so popular in our own community it spilled out so if you have a community of 10,000 people and 10,000 people are working with other communities and talking about what's going on all of a sudden 10,000 people have mentioned it to another 10 20 30,000 people and that's why that's how we used to evolve we used to get it right within our own community and then you would expand into the in other communities whether it was asian whether it was white whether it was African, but you would expand into another community that had its own business. So with expanding into white clubs, then white people started to play our music. And then with white people playing our music, then they expanded amongst themselves and it went into all the different countries. New Zealand, Australia, the States, the Philippines, you know, Europe, it went everywhere. Mm. And because these companies were everywhere, like you talk, there's a company called Philips. Everyone knows them for television, but Philips was Phonogram. Phonogram owned a record label. So everywhere they had factories, they had their record label, and they had the radio, and boom, you're all over the world. Wow. And now you're preparing for your anniversary for... Yes. Tell us some more about that. So we're doing a full feature film now of the Black Slate story. But um, the, what it is, the short movie, The Sticksman Record, shows me coming out of school. And then it shows all the different aspects of what it was like in 1976, leaving school to go on into the big wide world. And we're doing a series of five films that represents all the different areas. So obviously we're starting with the Black Slate story because we're now going to do a world tour celebrating 50 years. Then there's the Anthony Brightley story. In that story, you see more of how hard it was to get through and the things you had to do or was prepared to do to achieve the open doors. And then you have the story of what the record, so Sticksman, which was a huge hit for us, but it was a hit in so many different ways. So it was a local hit first, because it was talking about the kids in Hackney. Then we realized the kids in, what the kids in Hackney was doing was also the kids in Harringay, the kids in Tottenham, the kids in Brixton, Lewisham. So it became a London-wide hit. But once it came out of London and went into places like Birmingham, it became a community because once we came out of London, there was more mixing between black and white people.
a nightclub and there'll be black and white people. So when they heard the record saying, if you teeth from white, you will teeth from black. So it doesn't matter who it is, we are all the same. So outside of London, it created a unity of people understanding that we are telling you that there is no difference between us. We all have the same red blood, basically. And then when it went into Europe, they caught onto the beat of the drum. So in Europe, they called us the disco reggae band, and they would mix our record, not even realizing what the record was about, but it was something they could dance to. Mm-hmm. And you're talking about people whose language, the English language wasn't their first language. So they was dancing to Sticks, man. Why you do that, Robert, man? Without a clue how serious the record was for us, but for them, it was played in every discotheque in Europe. Apart from the fact that you are celebrating an anniversary, and a huge one at that, would you think that without the anniversary, it would still be important for people to know what you achieved and how important it is to black music now? Yeah, absolutely. So without the anniversary, the anniversary is the cherry on the cake. But... um, which is the reason why I decided to go into film, because we've done books, but we find that it was hard to get books into the school. It was hard to get the curriculum for us, so therefore people could study what has happened over the last 50 years. Because mm-hmm. black history is huge, but British black history is also huge. So I've decided that with every film that we make, we write a book, and then we do... I've got a group of school teachers that they create a curriculum for it. So therefore we have basically from infant school right up to college qualifications if you want to study that part of our black history that I'm sharing. And it's all part of what's going on. So you have the social study aspect of it, which is huge, because that's the part that people miss. They don't realize the social aspect of what black people had to go through to exist. And it's not about feeling sorry, it's about understanding yourself so that while moving forward, you can say, well, that worked. And it's always worked. So when you look around the world, you say, oh, communities work. Living outside of a community don't work. And what's happening in London now, everyone is so fragmented, there's no community. So you always have to adapt somebody else's community. Well, with everything that you're saying, I can see how it would relate to our metaphor this week, which is sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. How does that resonate for you? That resonates for me in this way. In school, I was never the best footballer, the best musician. I wasn't the best at anything. I could do it. People would put me in their team. I wasn't the first pick, but I wasn't the last pick either. But I would be maybe the third or the fourth pick because it was like, if Andy's on your side, he will back you up. So I was always part of creating teams. And one thing my dad taught me is that do not ever limit yourself by what you can't do. Find someone who can do it. So I could never spell. But on my table, there was always somebody who could spell. I was great at math, but you would find most people who were that good at English wasn't necessarily good at math. So I would help somebody with their math, and they would help me with my English. 
and I used that concept throughout my life. So when people would say, ah, oh, rightly can't really play music, I'll say, no, but I can play music with A, B, C, D, and E, and I'll make good records. Oh, rightly can't sing, I said, you're right. So therefore, I produced many singers who could sing. So for me, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never stop me from doing anything that I want to do, feel to do, or have to do. Would you say that has come principally because of the way that you were raised? And is this something that you inject with your family now? Yeah, absolutely, because what it is, my dad was raised on a farm field, and he would travel the world, but mainly travel to the States to just go and chop down corn, you know, pick corn, you know, as a picker. So because he couldn't read or write properly, he would always put people around him who could. But because he was such a strong man and could work well, he would work with somebody who needs help. And he would always create a team to create anything. So my dad always taught me that if you're, you know, like I used to say to my, my brother went to private school because he said to my dad, in the school years, they're not teaching them anything. And I thought my dad was going to send me to private school. And he says, no, you don't need to go to private school. You just watch what I do and do everything that I do, then you'll be able to get through. Because he found that even though the education system was good, what education system did was, like, he raised everything that my dad taught my brother and gave them all of their education. And when my brother came back to the family, he had all this education but he didn't know how to tie the two together. Because my dad thought that, yes, my son goes off, goes to university. When he comes back, he can help the business and the business can grow. Mm-hmm. But um, it didn't actually work that way. So what happened, my brother came back and then I used the brains of my brother with my simple everyday get on and do the job skills. And between the two of us, we were able to continue and carry on and expand my dad's business but we had to we worked that one out the hard way we didn't work it out the easy way it was the hard way you work within the community you support the community how do you do that i have a charity called prompt which stands for purpose respect obedience manners punctuality and training and those are the key points that underpin all my charitable work so i used to have a school in the uk which um, would teach children English and math and social skills, how to operate when you're on the street, how to communicate, how to talk to the police, how to talk to strangers, how to help. So it was a modern-day Cub Scout scenario because I used to go to the Cub Scout. And a lot of the things you learn in the Cub Scout, you didn't learn in school. Like, what is the last post? Well, I didn't learn about the last post in school. I learned about the last sports in in Scouts. I learned how to sew. My parents taught me a lot of personal skills, but in the Cub Scouts, they also did that. So I extended that in my school. So, and I ran my school in my nightclub. So what would happen is that I would only open my clubs on the weekend, Friday and Saturday night. And Monday to Thursday was school and on a Saturday was a school. So that's one part of the community work that I, I, and I still do now. We also created homes for young single women. And not to say single women with children had an issue, but also 
single people have issues and need help. So we had a halfway house for young persons who are coming out of care and needed help to transition themselves into the real world. So we did that for quite a while. And also we created Trident. Trident was created by myself and Lee Jasper and one other lady who was from Brixton. And we did this because we were concerned with how the police was treating young people on the street. So we said if we created a group that would consist of the Metropolitan Police, the local authority, the local council, and the community, that's why we call it TRI. So that's where the TRI came from. So Trident was, and that's why you had the circle in the logo. It means that if we all work together, we can make this work. So we wrote the protocol for how police were supposed to deal with black people in instance and, um, and basically, we initially did a campaign on Carlton TV at the time about the whole gun that was just being initiated. So we went in to find out where were the guns coming from, where this culture was coming from, because it wasn't local. We didn't have it prior. We didn't have it in the 70s. So why did it just emerge in the 80s and became so rampant in the 90s? So we realized that literally um, shops, like toy shops, were selling guns, which were toy guns. But we, what we found out that toy guns was made with the same mold of a real gun. As simple as it sounds, but all the toy guns. Mm-hmm. And that's why when people used to, when in war countries, they used to say, don't give your, your children a toy gun, because when somebody sees it, it looks like a real gun, because it is a real gun. It's just that they block up the holes. So that was discovered, and you had um, people coming in from different countries and turning toy guns into real guns and providing them with ammunition. So we were trying to back down or change. There was a particular shop in Hackney who was making big business out of it, and we were saying, look, you know why they buy this. It's not for kids. And we did a lot of research and found out how the Met Police really worked. And we helped them as advisors to try and um, basically do a better job. That worked for about three years. And because we wanted to be an independent setup, that helped them. The Metropolitan Police didn't want that. They wanted to be in charge of our funding. And, in, and basically, they wanted to know exactly what we were doing and be in control of who we work with and who we don't work with. And we said that would defeat the object. So they took our idea, our concept, and then it became really just a talking shop for local councillors. And then that was a way to get into politics. So um, the whole initiation of Trident just went the wrong way. So that's another movie that we're making. So people understand and can see what happened in our history and how it happened and you know it's right there it's right there in our face to see but you can't see it because there's a glass in front of it well you've spoken about so many things that i know my listeners you know you've taken them 
back in time and I'm sure in their minds they're comparing it to what's happening to today and I'm sure many of them too would like to experience the back in the days those tunes the vibes you know the friendships that they had in those days which is kind of different to what we are now so where can people uh, find you and find out uh, about the anniversary about your films so everything that's going on will be on antonybrightly.com or blackslatereggae.com. Between those two sites, everything that we're doing and everywhere, what we're, every, you know, where we're performing, and actually we have created our own... Um, it's going to be like a Netflix, but it's not a Netflix. It's going to be a site that we've created called The Body, The Body of Black. You can then go to that site. You'll be able to see our films there. And we've also created that site for other people to be able to be part of it. So whether it's the Black Pan organization or the DIF, all organizations will be able to be in within that system. So it'll be like a Yahoo or a Google setup where you'll have your own a body of black email address. We'll have our own diversion to WhatsApp. And basically somewhere to find whatever you're looking for. You are an entrepreneur forever, I believe, and, and your passion to uh, help the community grow ha has been heard loud and clear. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure sharing with you. Before our interview with our guest, we were discussing the effects of cyberbullying and how it perhaps goes to prove that our chosen metaphor has lost its relevance. But then again, has it? As mentioned earlier in the show, the metaphor, or rather mantra, has stuck around for almost 200 years now and is still a pretty well-known mantra, is it not? So does that go to show then that it has not lost its relevance after all? If anything, it can be seen as a resolve. Yes, verbal abuse can be just as bad as physical, that's very clear, but sticks and stones can be used as a reminder to not let harsh words or criticisms weigh us down. Imagine a boxing match. A few punches are thrown from each side, but neither one of the boxers goes down straight away, do they? Or at least not without putting up a good fight. Now, we couldn't mention boxing without adding a truly inspiring Rocky Balboa speech. Now you'll hear a reenactment of the sixth movie in the franchise. You know, living with you, it hasn't been easy. People see me, but they think of you. Now, with all this going on, it's going to be the worst than ever. It don't have to be. Oh, no, sure it does. Well, you've got a lot going on, kid. My last name, that's the reason I got a decent job. That's the reason why people deal with me in the first place. Now, I start to get a little ahead. I start to get a little something for myself, and this happens. Now, now I'm, I'm asking, asking you, as, as a favor, favor not, not to go, go through, through with this, okay? This is only going to end up bad for you, and it's going to end up bad for me. You think you I'm hurting, hurting you? Me? Yeah, in a way you are. That's the last thing I've ever wanted to do. I know that's not what you want to do, but that's just the way that it is. Don't you care what people think? Doesn't it bother you that, that people are making you out to be a joke and I have to be included in that? You think that's right? Do you? You ain't gonna believe this. You used to sit right here. I'd hold you up and say to your mother, this kid is gonna be the best kid in the world. This kid is gonna be better than anybody I ever knew and you grew up good and wonderful. It was great just watching you. Every day was like a privilege, till the time comes for you to be your own man and take on the world. And you did. 
And so somewhere along the line, line you changed. changed. You stopped stop being, being you. you. You let people stick a finger in your face and tell you you're no good. And, and when things got, got hard, hard, you started, started looking, looking for something, something to, blame. to blame, like, like a, a big, big shadow. shadow. Let me tell you something you already know. The world ain't all sunshine and rainbows. It's a very mean and nasty place. And I don't care how tough you are. It will beat you to your knees and keep you there permanently if you let it. You, you meet or nobody, nobody gonna, gonna hit, hit as hard, hard as life. life. But it, it ain't about how hard, hard you hit. hit. It's, it's about, about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. About how much you can take and keep moving forward. That's how winning is done. Now if you know what you're worth, go out and get what you're worth. But you gotta be willing to take the hits and not pointing fingers. And saying you ain't where you are because of him or her or anybody. Cowards, Cowards do, that, do that and that ain't you. you. You're better than that. And even running up the rocky steps in Washington, D.C. made me feel strong and motivated. But like how a bandage or a cast may help heal broken bones, will developing a mental bandage, whenever we have been hurt emotionally, have the same effect, perhaps? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. I want you to take a moment and think about this quote. When I was a student at university, that's what our professor told us. She gave us this quote and told us to explain it. In truth, I thought about it and realized that I couldn't disagree more with it. Bones can be mended, wounds can heal, but words, especially negative ones, will never be forgotten. People's opinions affect us. One of my favorite animation movies that talks about this is Shrek. In the movie, Donkey asks Shrek, what do you have against the world? To which Shrek answers, it's the world that seems to have a problem with me. People take a look at me and say, run, help. They judge me before they even know me. Because an opinion can really crush someone on the inside. Not to mention that it is usually uncalled for and is wrong anyway. Another movie quote that I love is Will Smith's quote in The Pursuit of Happiness. In this film, his character says to his son, people can't do something themselves, so they wanna tell you that you can't do it. And if you want something, Go get it. Period. A person has his own dreams, and people should not really believe in them the way that person does. However, they should at least respect them. So the moral of today's video, speak no evil, as it might crush people on the inside, and hear no evil, and choose to forget about other people's opinions. And I end this video with this quote by Prophet Muhammad, saying a good word. Today's metaphor definitely applies to the man known as the most famous boxer of all time, Muhammad Ali. Ali's life was full of various battles in and out of the boxing ring. He was dyslexic and he grew up in the middle of 1940s and 1950s America, a time in which racial segregation was still rampant. Ali was even denied a simple glass of water in his childhood at a store because of his skin color. There's a story from when he was 12, which involved a thief attempting to steal his bicycle. The fuming Ali went after the thief, whereupon a police officer and coincidental boxing coach, Joe E. Martin, intervened in the matter. However, Martin was impressed with the young boy's fiery determination to not be walked over, suggesting that he take up boxing if he was ever going to probably be able to stand up to the bullies. Ali took his advice and the rest, as they say, is history.
However, it almost came all crashing down between 1967 and 1971, when Ali was prevented from participating in any matches due to his refusal to be conscripted into the United States Armed Forces for the Vietnam War. Ali declaring that he had no ill will towards any Vietnamese and would not fight for a country that didn't respect his own rights as an American citizen, as well as believing the war to be against his religious beliefs. Ali now not only faced imprisonment, but also a lot of verbal attacks, such as from American television host David Susskind, who derided Ali on live television. I find nothing amusing or interesting or tolerable about this man. He's a disgrace to his country, his race, and what he laughingly describes as his profession. He is a convicted felon in the United States. He has been found guilty. He is out on bail. He will inevitably go to prison, as well he should. He's a simplistic fool and a pawn. Ali had to stand up for himself for five years, appealing against calls for his imprisonment for refusing the draft, a battle which he eventually won in court. Then he had only 10 more years to reignite his boxing career before being diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. There's no denying that Ali was a truly inspirational individual, an example to us all, someone whose resilience was awe-inspiring. He definitely lived up to the mantra of sticks and stones. But back to the concept of boxing itself. Next time you watch a boxing match, nowadays dominated by the likes of Conor McGregor and Floyd Mayweather, there's a lot of attention paid to their physical presence and prowess in the ring. But have you ever thought about the mental side to boxing? It takes a lot to stand up in front of hundreds, if not thousands, does it not? But this could apply to any sports out there. You don't just need to be physically ready to take on your opponent, but also your mental opponents. Those voices in your head that say you're not good enough or the echoes of bygone critics who said the same. As mentioned throughout our program today, maintaining our mental health is considered to be equally important as maintaining our physical health. Boxing is considered to be hugely beneficial for your mental health as it inspires confidence and boosts self-esteem. Even one of the most famous boxers on the current scene, Tyson Fury himself, the Gypsy King, suffered from depression, not being able to cope with the pressures of training as well as receiving verbal abuse due to his traveller background. It all became too much for Fury. He spoke about his mental boxing matches with his invisible enemy in 2018. You know what it is? The world is behind me. This isn't a, a small space thing. I'm a global phenomenon. I get messages of support from all over the world. Um, I'm inspiring people and giving them hope. Everybody who's been suffering for long periods of time, lifetimes of suffering with no help, no one to turn to, no one to give them hope, no one to give them passion, no one to give them determination or drive, will look no further because I'm that man. And I've been in them places, you know. I don't sit here as somebody not experienced in, in, in dark times. I've been so dark where it was pitch black, where I was taking drugs and drinking on a daily basis. Yeah, You can't go any lower than that. I was 400 pounds, I was a fat pig. I wanted to die. I didn't want to live, I had everything to live for. Fame, money, achievements, wives, families, a lot. But it didn't mean anything because I was suffering with mental health problems. So if I can turn my life around and come back from that to on Saturday night as well, 
been on the verge of winning another World Heavyweight Championship, then anybody can achieve anything they want to in life with the right help and the right... So it seems that even those of us who may look big and strong and as tough as old boots like Fury, we're all human after all. We're all prone to the effects of verbal mistreatment. So, yes, it appears that sticks and stones may have lost their relevance in recent times. I mean, were you aware of the mental health side effects of the COVID pandemic? Issues caused by long periods of isolation indoors, which leads to prolonged periods of loneliness? So it goes to show that physical and mental health are now intrinsically linked. But should sticks and stones be completely disregarded? Muhammad Ali, now sadly no longer with us, to this day remains a shining example of the mantra. As the great man himself once said, if my mind can conceive it and my heart can believe it, then I can achieve it. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. It's a metaphor we're all familiar with and will have heard of several times throughout our lives. Often used as a mantra to counteract verbal abuse, the meaning behind the metaphor is that yes, while those who wish ill will on us can damage us physically, like from sticks and stones, whatever they may say verbally will never have an effect nor hurt us. It's to increase resilience and also to put our minds at ease when we find ourselves in the middle of a heated moment that nothing is to be taken to heart. Thanks for listening to this episode of Metaphorically Speaking. I hope you enjoyed it and maybe learned something new. We'd love you to share the show with your friends and please feel free to leave a review on colorful.com or on our podcast, Metaphorically Speaking, which is on Apple, Spotify and all major streaming platforms. And always remember to join us live at 9am Mondays at colorful.com. If you'd like to suggest a metaphor for an upcoming show, you can reach us at info at metaphoricallyspeaking.uk. Join us for another metaphor next week. I'm Delia Delore. Keep safe. Goodbye.